We talked at the CBS Broadcast Center as his new memoir came out. It's called Dapper Dan, Made in Harlem. A perfect title. And he showed up looking as dapper as ever. I'm sitting here with a living legend. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, in some circles, yeah. <laughs> that's an incredible thing. I've yeah. been reading about you. I've been loving your story. I'm honored to have you with us today. Thank you, man. I'm honored to be here, especially since I watch you on news every day. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even imagine being here. This is like, you know, it's something like I tell my friends, like, you go through life and, you know, my whole life is about retooling, you know. And, like, when I was first born and growing up in East Harlem, the poorest neighborhood in East Harlem, and being surrounded, like, my father was the only male in my family that wasn't really a hustler. And so that's the first thing I learned. So those are the first tools that I used to try to survive and raise myself up out of the situation I was in. Right. You know? And so in reading your story and in watching where you are today, here you are, you have a store partnered up with Gucci. Yes. There are pictures of you online at the Met Gala. Yes. You're standing there on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum posing and the world's photographers are taking pictures of you. Yes. And you have been in some of the darkest places in the world and some of the most amazing places in the world. What, what goes through your mind as you write your autobiography? You're, you're writing your story. What, what was that like? What was the, the sensation of putting it all on paper? I think the story starts with the way I saw the possibilities. I think a lot of it has to do with the experience with my father and, what, and coming up from the South. You have to look at this. My father was born in 1898. That's 33 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. My father's father was born a slave and later freed. In South Carolina? And No, Emporia, Virginia. My mother's from South Carolina. Ah. Yeah. So when my father came up, I think this really... The, the energy from what I was able to do, when my father came up, he left home at 12 years old. I couldn't even fathom what that was like. An orphan. Yeah, and then when I began to study you know, African-American history, I found out during the Reconstruction period, with like the later Reconstruction period in 1910, which is when he left the South, you know, it was typical for African-American men to leave the South, the, the strong ones, right? right? And to come North. And Because I my, it was so tough. It was Yeah, because it was so tough. Right? And those who rejected what was taking place in the South. So the more I studied my father and the historical climate that was taking place when he was born, the more empowered I felt. Hmm. You know, and, and I looked at the big picture, I said, wow. When you look at the fact that we slaves in Africa, then you know you get captured. Then you got the Middle Passage. Then you got 300 years of slavery, and then you got what he endured there. Then leaving there and coming north and never going back. Never seen. I never saw any of his family again. I said, Daddy, well, um, why didn't you go back? He said everybody in his family had died. His brother was raising them. So I say, why you leave? He said. My brother was too good to me, so I had to leave and make it on my own, and he never went back. Do you know what he meant by that? I never, never went back. He's come from, and he comes from what I call tiny town America, tiny town America. 
It's uh, Emporia, Virginia. Pop and I looked it up. Population when he left, between five and six thousand. Population today, between five and six thousand. So this, my father, work ethic was amazing. Me and my sisters was all drawing that. He worked for the city um, later on. He, first of all, he only went to the third grade. This was a big impression. And he had three and, jobs. Yeah, and he yeah he had three jobs, and he taught himself to read. You know, uh, there's one incident like I talk about in the book is where I was going to get my first suit, and he takes me to um, Ripley the clothing store, and we goes up there. I just learned how the mathematical equation for figuring out interest when you buy on time. And I told him, Daddy, that's going to cost like two and a half times what it's worth. Because they wanted to put it on layaway, right? Yes, this is layaway. where they were going to charge to buy it, all kind of interest and they were yeah. just going to crush you. Exactly. Right? That's an un unbelievable story. And you yeah. were the one who knew how to read. Yeah. So when um when I read the contract, I told him not to buy it. And we on our way downstairs from the store and I see his face and tears well up in his eyes. And I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And my father looks at me in a face that I will never forget. He say, boy, don't you know you could read? You could read, boy. And that always like set down in the back of my head. And this and that's been like the catalyst from which I everything that I've ever got involved in and wanted to know, I would read myself out of it. Right. Especially after I read Malcolm, you know, right. Malcolm X when I wanted to change my life and find out what happened to me. Right. I yeah. mean it just his story is I can't I can't get over it, right? <laughs> So start, start me here. What's your schedule today? What do you have today? Today? Yeah. Well, this morning I had New York 1. Now I have uh, one of my heroes here. <laughs> uh, uh, what I call Monsieur Du Bois. <laughs> yeah, and later on we have um, Vanity Fair and WWD. So you're doing interviews left and right? Left and right. All as day. the book comes out. And the book comes out. It's, it's amazing. Yes. And you're running a store. And I'm on the store. And there's a movie coming out about and you. And there's a movie coming out, yeah. And you're still making clothes. And I'm still making clothes. And your clothes are all over the world. And my clothes are all over the world. So excited. It's sold out in Asia, sold out in Europe, sold out here in, in uh, USA. So it's, it's been amazing. In your quiet moments, do you, what do you say to yourself about all that's going on? All that's happening now versus all that happened before in your life. What do you think? What do you feel? You know, I think that uh, I knew that one day that I was going to have money, but I didn't know one day I was going to have fame. One thing I learned, everybody in my neighborhood loved my father, and what I learned from my father is to be kind and to be good. And I had to, given the circumstances and the life that I was involved in, with the criminal elements that I had, the judgments I had to use, I never, I never deviated from that element that I got from my father. So I knew something was good was coming, but I didn't think it was gonna be like this. I had no idea it was gonna be like this. Your clothes have been on runways around the world, yes? Mm -hmm. Yes. You have had an exhibit at MoMA, Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art in New York City? Yes, that was probably the height because um, you have to remember, I wasn't really recognized by middle class people of color because they didn't get what I was doing. Right. So um, just, yeah, just last year was the first time like Ebony Magazine honored me, but no major black like um, 
news media ever gave me that credit right. after 30 years, but they recognized me last year. So but it's, prior to that, I've been in every major um, publication in, in terms of fashion around the world. But what I'm getting at is the length of this struggle. It, it has taken so long yes. to get to this point. Yes. And, f and as you're writing this book, when you, as you're putting the words on paper or on the computer, you, you, gotta just, you just gotta pinch yourself. You gotta think, what? Wow. Pinch myself. I tell my friends all the time. I say, if somebody pinch me and I wake up, I'm gonna kill them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you have a bullet in your neck. Yeah, I have a bullet in the base of my neck. You got shot outside your store. Yeah. Uh, you know, sitting in your van, right? Sitting. Yes. In yes. But you know, the culture has. You might hear me say, in one of the quotes, if you did the research, it's like, you cannot be in it, and not of it. So I had to, that's why you see me constantly walking away from certain lines. The Panther Party, the Nation of Islam, you know, all these organizations that I've been a part of, that when you see that this is not for me here. And that's one of the incidents that I encountered. Like, my customers were drug dealers. All my clients were drug dealers or, or some kind of gangsters hustlers. from the hood. You know, a hustler, some up to yeah. that way. So... Um, when you're in that kind of climate, anything could happen. And I knew that. And, and in fact, I never allowed no females in my family to, in my store right. because of the danger of the climate that was there. Right, that kind of place. Yeah. I just wanted to sort of touch on some of the, the things that, I mean, that were turning points in, in your life. You've been locked up in Manhattan? Yes. Locked up in Aruba? Yes. Spent, what, three months in Manhattan, I think it was? And yeah, then three months. That was, a, that was like... 90 days, what I call my first rebirth. <laughs> yeah, right. that was my first resurrection. Right, and, and what, remind us what you were in there for again. That, was, uh, that had to do with heroin, right? That, when I was in there, uh, that was a 33, I think it was 3305, a simple sale of a, a narcotic drug. Right. I, I got busted June 19th, June, no, June 19th, 1967. I got out September 27th, 1967 and went right back to high school at 20, 23 years old. I didn't want no part of that life. Right. While I was in there, what really influenced me a lot, uh, I think it was Johnson 3X, one of the assassinators, so the alleged assassinators of Malcolm X, right. he was in there with me, and I saw the conversion and how he was treated and the dignity. I said to myself, I may go back to jail again one day, but it will never be for that. And I, I walked away, that's when I walked away right. from that life. That was a major turning point. Um, locked up in Aruba. You yeah. guys were down there, um, this was a credit card scheme. Yeah, yeah, right? so I went from exploiting, like once you go through that transition, and you say, I'll never do nothing to hurt people of color or poor people ever again. So I had the, uh, this thing like, banks are, this open field on banks, you know? So we was on this excursion, hitting all these, international islands and countries and uh basically the scheme was you buy stuff with stolen credit cards yeah, and you sell yes, stuff exactly and you make a lot of money yes and you right? make a lot of money and then you get caught in aruba yeah and then, then you have time to sit and think in jail yeah what are your thoughts while you're locked up that's when i had a chance to really get deep involved i was on a spiritual transition anyway but when I went to Aruba, I, uh, I was already deep in it, but when I went to Aruba, I had a chance. They, that afforded me the opportunity to uh, 
really study and get in depth, further in depth on where I need to be spiritually. Yeah. And, and you I, came out a changed man. Uh, yeah, I came out a changed man. I, I mean, it was amazing transformation. Um, I want to back it up to, to childhood because we started talking about your dad earlier. Mm -hmm. and, and you grow up in a family with three brothers, three sisters. And I'm right in the middle. Right. You're Madison Avenue, 129th Street. No, Lexington Avenue. Lexington, 129th, sorry. Um, and you don't, you don't have much. You don't have much. Parents Any came here from the South, as you said. Your dad is two generations removed from people living in slavery. Yes. Right? Um, so there's poverty. There's racism. There's hate. But there's community. There's yes. these, you describe these Southern, these people coming up from the South, they live in you know, as if they're living back home, but now they're, they've transplanted the culture up here in the North. Yes. And so you have to figure out ways to make do and ways to, you know, you have to make decisions. You see your dad's working three jobs. Yes. Mom's taking care of all these kids. You're still poor, you're still hungry. You're hungry a lot. You yes. gotta get some food. So, so kids start stealing stuff, right? Yes. And, and you, you, you start to learn the ways of the world as a child and how to hustle and how to make, make your way. Yes. Describe, well, how would you describe your childhood when you think back on it? Was it, was it safe? Was it pleasant? Was it fun? Was it exciting? What, what would the words be that you would use? You, you hear some people talk about, I was poor, they didn't know they were poor. I was poor and knew I was poor. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you could tell. Had, it was no doubt. You because, had evidence. You know, we couldn't afford, you know, we couldn't afford shoes. A lot of times I used to have to put, Newspaper in my shoes. Cardboard. Until we, yeah, linoleum, until we got, yeah, right? linoleum until we got innovative when I put linoleum. You're not the only one who did that. Yeah, and uh, we used to swim in, uh, as a kid, I used to go down to the bank of the Harlem River and take and scoop up clay and make things out of clay. Mm -hmm. And as we got a little older and we learned to swim, we used to swim in the Harlem River. I'm the next to the last generation. I'm not even the last generation that swim in the Harlem River. You know, so I'm the next to the last generation to swim in the Harlem River. So you swim in the Harlem River. The public school I went to, um, once a week they took us swimming, you know, because a lot of the pools was prejudiced. And, and they took us to the bathhouse. Uh, which is on 135th Street by uh, Lennox Terrace. And they were taking to the bathhouse. I was unaware that when we go swimming, we used to be naked. We was required to be swimming naked. Wow. And before we could get in the pool, they would line us up and check our bodies to make sure we was clean. Wow. Before we can get in the water. But we didn't, that part, I didn't know. I thought it was that way everywhere. That seemed normal. Yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, yeah. but I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And so, um, some days, the only meal, the, you know, the major meal I got was in elementary school while we was in, while we was in school. So you figured out ways to, to make do. Yeah. Kids would I, steal stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the earliest thing I learned was, this is, this predates, this is Harlem. I'm the last generation to grow up in Harlem that grew up without a drug epidemic, mm. you know? And it hadn't fact, started yet. I'm sorry? It hadn't started yet. It hadn't started. It right. didn't start till, till the 60s. This is the 50s now when I'm growing up. And um, so it was like the policy, the gambling, the number business, you know, or the lottery. That was, that was really big. But, and um, I remember the first thing I did, job I had was Mr. Booker, the number man. He used to come back and pick up the number slips. I would wait for him every day on my stoop because I knew he didn't walk up, want to walk up the five flights of steps 
to pick up all the number slips from the old ladies in the building. And I would go pick up all the old, the slips from the number ladies and come and bring them down to him and he'd give me a quarter. Mm -hmm. Movie theater was only 15 cent. Popcorn was three cent. So a quarter was a whole lot of money. You made a lot of money like that. Yeah. So eventually you find yourself in the dice game. Yeah. You learn to roll dice. And yeah. you learn how to fix those dice. <laughs> I learned everything there is about dice. Right. But once again, the key to that is um, that's why the guy Dapper Dan named me Dapper Dan because I got better than him. But the key to that. Wait, wait, who, who was that guy? Dapper Dan. Right, right. But Dapper Dan is like a hustler in the Harlem. And um, he was an amazing hustler. He, he, he knew all the tricks and the trades of what we call hustle back in the day. But he decided you should be Dapper Dan yeah. because you but were when always he saw dressed. my skills, right. he, he changed his name from Dapper Dan to Tenor Man Dan and gave me his name and anointed me with his name. Which skills was he talking Dapper about? Dapper Dan. We're talking about gambling skills. Uh -huh. But he was a professional con man and he a pickpocket and he was like every, everything, <laughs> you know. So you became so, Dapper Dan. And then I became Dapper Dan because of my gambling skills. But uh, I learned from the older guys, and, and I learned from my uncle. My uncle was a master, a master cardsmith, and as a and my mother's brother. And he ran away when he was young and joined the circus. And somebody in the circus told him all the card tricks. So I had you know really great experience in in in, in terms of gambling. But I didn't stop there. John Scarney, who is the world authority, he passed away, but he's the world authority on gambling. I read all his books, everything. So I had the street knowledge as well as the literary knowledge on what gamblers. And then I read a book called uh, Hustlers and Conmen. I read everything that had to do with hustling in the street as well as I was doing my spiritual reason. Right. So it was this fight that was taking place in, inside of me. Right, a two-pronged thing. Yeah. Your first touch, your first brush with clothing, it came on a trip to Africa. Yes. And the Ali Foreman fight is delayed because of an injury. Yes. George Foreman got injured during training, correct? Yes. So the fight's delayed, you're over there to watch this fight, now you have some time, and during the time that you had, you meet a tailor. Yes. And this guy opens your eyes to a lot of things. Yes. He changed the way you saw clothes. Because you like clothes. Yes. But now he changed, changed the way you looked at it. Well, t t tell me about that. Yeah. Well, what happened was like um, since uh, Foreman got hurt and it, he wasn't going to heal that quick. So now the plane that I'm on yeah, stops at three countries. So it's Zaire and Nigeria and Liberia. So on the way back, we stopped at Liberia, and I said, let me get some artifacts before I get back to New York. So I'm super fly, you know. I come to the, to the flea market where they sell the artifacts, and, uh, and the African guy tells me, I say, I like this, I like that there, and I'm pointing out artifacts I like. He say, I like your clothes. I say, you do? I say, you want to trade? He says, yes. I run up into the hotel and get all of my clothes, everything and start trading him for artifacts, which I have in my brownstone now. And then I get him to buy, to make me clothes. Now, this is when the concept came in mind. So I use African tailoring and African fabric, but you know, the style we made in Harlem. So that's when it came, the thought later on when I opened my store, I say, wait a minute. I'm an Africanized European style and take that there and use it as a vehicle to 
em, to emulate these things that Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and Fendi was doing, but I'm gonna do it Africanized. Africanized. So that's why you hear me say I Africanized it or Blackanized it. Blackanized yeah. it. That's what you did. Yeah. That's your word. Yes. That's a great term. Yes. Um, so the light bulbs were going off right then? Were you yeah, thinking? Light, yeah, yeah. What, what were you thinking? Did you imagine a store? Did you imagine a, a career? Or did you just thought this is cool? No, I knew that I had to do something to get away from the streets. You were seeing a business plan? I'm sorry? Right, you were seeing a business plan right then yes, and there? Yes, yes, yes. Really? And I knew I had to get, and I knew that um, what people in my community like, so I said, you know what? I'm open a store and cater to them. And that's when that all came about. Mm -hmm. So to open a store, you need money. Yeah, I need money. You come back home. Yeah, so what I did. <laughs> you got to get some money. Yeah, I got to get some money. You can't just raise it up out of the, out of the yeah, street. So, so what did you do? I had a plan. I knew these two boosters, right? And this is what I figured it out. Boosters. Boosters, like these women who go in stores and steal clothes, right? Ah, yes. But they need a driver. Right? So I figured it out. I said, I got to get this money. They pay uh, $50 per person, two, two boosters. And I drive them. Both of them give me $50 a piece for the day. And plus, they sell me everything they boost at 25%. So if it was $100, I pay 25% for it. Right? $25 for it. And I sell it for 50 And I did that for 30 days. And for 30 days, I, I, I got... $3,000 just for driving, driving plus around. all the other money that I got for um, selling the clothes for selling the clothes out of the trunk now, of the car out of the trunk of a car on the corners or wherever on the corners all the hot spots in the after hour clubs everything like that yeah, and that's how I generated the first care and then from the, from the trunk of the car I got me a little small store then a larger store then a three-story building I started with in the beginning one two Africans Senegalese tailors, tailors, then four, right. then I had ten. And the way you met these tailors is amazing, too. You, 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 you're thinking, I don't know how to sew. I need a guy to make clothes. Exactly. You see a guy on the street, you ask him if he knows anybody who could sew. That's right. And then he finds somebody, a guy you had never met before, right? Never met before. Shows up at the store. And what's, what was his name again? Uh, uh, that was Sek. Right, S-E-K. Yes. yes. This guy comes and he becomes your tailor. Yes. And he's sewing clothes for you. Yes. And that's how the store started. And that's how it started. I mean, this was, this was a nine-year run. You had this store on 125th yes, Street. Yes, nine-year run. And, you know, you had all manner of, of, of situations. Again, you, you got shot at one point. You had um, Mike Tyson. Well, that's really at the end. We'll get to Mike Tyson in a second. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, you, you lived in this place. You gave your soul to this store, right? Yes. And, and I, I love the story of when um, you spotted a purse on somebody and you thought, that, that can be clothing. Yeah. That can be clothing. Tell us, tell us how yeah, that goes. Yeah. See, you know what? Because I had been away, and you cannot study religion without study, I mean, and really understand, without studying symbolism. So when this guy came in the store that day and he had this pouch, this Louis Vuitton pouch with the symbols on it, you know, Louis Vuitton symbols on it, and everybody got excited about that pouch. The LV. The LVs, right? right? Everybody got that. But what is the essence of what they excited about? I read that right away. They excited because it says LV. Now we're moving from general clothing to 
luxury branding, you know? And everybody's into this luxury branding, and, and so they're involved in LV. Now, originally I'm selling dime, like furs because what they like, in, you know, people on, on the rise like diamonds and furs, but I couldn't do that. That was the original. The diamonds was off limits for me. Right. So furs is something that I could master and learn. But now I need a, something else that will generate income because that's like seasonal. And when everybody got si excited about that, I say, imagine if they get that excited about a bag, imagine how they would feel if I can make them walk around looking like a bag. And immediately, I went to work on studying. I went and got books about textile printing. I went to textile shows. I learned everything I could until I mastered what I needed to do to recreate that bag in full-length garments for people. And then you went down Fifth Avenue into Midtown. Yes. To the Gucci and Louis Vuitton stores. Yes. Where you started buying garment bags. Yeah, that's what I did initially. That's unbelievable. Yeah, because I needed it initially until I had to figure out how to make the material myself so I wouldn't have to buy the bags. But you're buying garment bags to use the fabric from the garment bags. Yes, initially. To make people's clothing. Exactly. And you're selling this stuff. Yes. I mean, who does that? Who thinks of that? <laughs> yeah, right. How did yeah. that occur to you? Yeah, I just, They need this. I got to make it. There's, there's the amount of fabric. Boom. And then you started buying it out. Yes. Buying the stuff out. Buying it out. And That's selling right. it. Yes. Remade in, 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 in yeah. clothing. Yeah. But once I learned the technology, that just took it to another level. Because right. now I'm not restricted to the colors that we're subject to with, the, uh, with that material. Right. That's vinyl. With the technology that I developed, with the idea I developed, now I can do it on cloth. I can do it on leather. I Printing logos. I can do big people. I was doing cars, furniture, everything. The leather inside of the cars the you made. Leather inside the cars. Wow. And so what's the, what's the silk screening? That's the silk process. Silk screen process, right. yes. <laughs> so you do this. You're selling these clothes. And eventually... Um, the law starts to starts to come yeah, down on trademark you. law. Trademark law, because yes. I mean, look, you're making stuff with other people's labels, but you're doing it, you know, dapper dance style, which is a whole. It should be a compliment, but they took it as an infringement. Yes. Right. Exactly. So they'd come into stores, and they'd raid you. Yeah, they with raid court you. orders. With a court order, a cease and desist court order. <laughs> yep. With the marshal, you know, and uh, it's the lesson. You know, it's three orders: copyright. Uh, trademark and um, as well as um, the other one but trademark is the least of the three you know and so they came and kept raiding me raiding me and raiding me you know and one of the people who raided you was the last was a, raid was the a, last a, the most powerful raid was um, a future Supreme Court Justice Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor Sonia Sotomayor. Yes. She Sonia was a lawyer. Sotomayor. Representing. She was a lawyer for, for Fendi then. Right. Yep. And she came to the store. I'll never forget it. I had a full-length leather coat there. Uh, Fendi. It was black on black, plongee leather with tuxedo black mink coat. <laughs> and she said, wow, this guy belongs downtown. But she immediately confiscated everything, you know, and they sued me. And, uh, and uh, I had a three-story building. I had a 2,000 square foot uh, factory in East Harlem. I had 12, uh, 12 Senegalese African workers in the daytime, 11 at night, and I was open 24 hours a day for nine for 10 years straight. And that that I mean, you're you're sleeping in the store. Sleeping in the store because when clients clientele yeah. would come in overnight. 
Yeah. When the clubs closed or whenever they felt like it. Yeah, they were night people. Like, even the uh, and you know hip hop artists was just just beginning to blossom, but the gangsters and the pimps and the you know all the nightlife people. So that they want to be at night, I had to be there at night. But and so the clients included hip hop stars, the early yeah, hip hop stars, the birth of yeah. Eric B and Rakim, Eric, LL Cool J, the Fat Boys, Salt and Pepper. Yeah, right. That was that was the beginning. What was it like with with those folks? They weren't big like they are now. No, they couldn't afford to pay. Most of them, they used to have to wait outside the store until the gangsters leave and then come in. You know, they wouldn't. They couldn't come in. They had the only, money. only exception, I think, at the beginning was Eric B and Rakim because they. They knew gangsters and stuff like that. But everybody else, they couldn't, you know, I try to keep from talking about a lot of the hip-hop artists owe me money from back then because they couldn't pay. <laughs> to this they know day? who they are. To this day? To this day. What kind of money are we looking at? Yeah, yeah no, I, I ain't going to tell on them now, but that might be, on, uh, I might put that in the book too. But uh, no, they couldn't afford it. The only ones who had money back then were the fat boys. And they don't get a lot of uh recognition today but the fat boys is the only one you know they made them two movies disorderlies and stuff like that mm -hmm. yeah but it was the fat boys so the end of the store came when mike tyson got into it with mitch green this yeah. boxer he had beaten green was not happy yeah and tyson comes to the store and green was nearby yeah 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 we have i have pictures of all the whole entire fight in the book yeah um mitch green used to hang out in the neighborhood and we had some young kids he used to tease him all the time. And it just so happened that Mike Tyson is in the store. I'm waiting for him to 2 o'clock in the morning. But I say, I got I to gotta go back to my other place now. And I leave. And Mike Tyson come. And I, my night manager there, my nephew. And here come Mitch Green to say, you know, you know you didn't beat me. And a big, a big argument ensued. You know, it starts into the store. Goes outside the store. Mitch Green is still agitating he rips the side mirror off mike tyson's uh rolls royce and mike tyson decks him all the pictures are in the book right. i didn't reveal them pictures it's been since that happened it's been like 26 years right. and i never showed anybody them pictures i showed two re uh two reporters just to show them that it existed and they gave me 750 dollars a piece 1500 right. dollars just to show them it existed they were ready to pay big money yeah they were but they, you didn't they offered up to 115,000. But the code of the street kept me from, from selling them pictures. Didn't so sell. only till today did I release it. Mike Tyson was a young boy. I said, God, then he was 19. He didn't understand the ramifications associated with them pictures. If I'd have showed them pictures, Mitch Green would have been able to sue him for millions. Right. So the store eventually gets shut down. Yeah, we get shut down. Because up. the world finds out about it. Then, you know, you end up in court. You lose the store. Yeah. I lose and, then, the, and then you go into a depression. Yeah, I go into a deep depression. I think I yeah. lost like... I lost like 15 pounds. I, I was down to 153 pounds, man, just trying to figure this thing out. So when I figured it out, I said, this is what I'm going to do. Since I know all the gangsters, all the gangsters used to come from different cities. So I would make clothes, leave New York, and hit every black city from here to Chicago going west. On the road. You were driving. On the road in right. the car. And selling out of the trunk once again. Selling out of the trunk once again. <laughs> and then come back to New York. And then you know, when it got cold over there, come back to New York and then hit all the black cities from New York to, to Atlanta. Yeah. And that's how I sustained myself for 20 years on the ground. I, I look at um, a lot of the reasons for your success. And, and this is one thing that you wrote here. You talk about how you, 
you deconstructed the brands down to the essence of their power, which was the logo crest. Yes. Right? You said my customers wanted to buy into that power, and that's what I was offering. They didn't have to go downtown. didn't have to wear something in colors they didn't like. And then the point that I really like here, you say it was made by someone who understood their lives. The people didn't have to compromise. You, yes. didn't, you didn't say, wear this. You exactly. said, what do you want? Exactly. And you had them sort of design it with you. Exactly. And then you'd make it for them. Exactly. I mean, that's genius. It's not like, look, this is what it is and that's it. It's, th- there was a give and take. There was a collaboration. Exactly. And um, there still is, by the way. Yeah, that's, um, you know what? I, um, because I grew up so poor and didn't have clothes, and once I witnessed the transformative power that clothes had, you have to, what happened to me, I wanted to see that happen to them. Mm. to my clients what happened so, to you so, what do you mean so it's like when you put on when something I first got some clothes and i saw the different the, the effect i became dapper dan like i was like transformed that's how i got to be dapper dan it's like these clothes made me dapper dan in addition to my gambling uh, skill but that <laughs> that alone wouldn't have did it right. it's that you know that flair that it gives you and i say wow i like this and then i like the feeling of making somebody else feel that way you know, and so I sit down with them and say, "How do you feel about yourself? How do you look? You know, how do you want to look?" And and we work on that. You also. But I also would remind them, everything in your mind might not look good on your behind, but we gonna work this thing out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can help them through it. Yeah. There's even a moment when you're you're a kid, you're at home, and you you wanted your brother's clothes. You wanted to wear your brother's clothes because oh, they were nicer. Yeah. He would sleep by the door so you wouldn't leave the house with his clothes on. So you would throw him out the window to your friend. Yeah, so I could change in the hall. Change at school. Yeah. And one day he caught you. Yeah, man. Oh, that was something. Uh, I dropped one. I'm standing in front of the school. I'm all sharp and flying. All the girls is looking at me. And I see somebody tearing through the schoolyard. I'm saying, damn, I look like my brother. <laughs> and it's my brother tearing through the schoolyard. <laughs> took me into the school. And took me in the te- I said, we can't go in the teacher's bathroom. He took me in the teacher's bathroom, made me change my clothes and put on my original clothes I should have had on. I had to sneak out to school and go home the back way. You know, yeah, that, that, that's the Because you didn't want to be seen in raggedy. I didn't want to be seen with my. The, raggedy clothes. My raggedy clothes. Didn't want that, right? Didn't want that. You talk I about this, go to school. You talk about this transformative power of clothes. It's transformed your life. Yes. I mean, look look at this, right? I mean, look at these glasses you got on right here. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. want you to tell me the story of those glasses yeah. um, in a moment. But, but if there's a lesson in your life, of your life, what is it? The, the biggest lesson that I learned in my life is, um, is probably to look at, and it's so ironic because to look at materialism as opposed to spiritualism. You know, it's like the fetters, casting off the fetters. The further I moved away, like maybe 20 years ago, I gave all my jewelry and everything to my son, Danny Jr. I just shied away from I think, you know what I think it was? When I was, in, when I was locked up in Aruba, right, there was um, this Arubian, or what they call him, Arubiano, that was, in, was locked up with us. And he was in the cell with my friend. And my friend told me, you know what he just told me? He said, all he needed was $5 every day. And with that $5, he'd get him a sandwich, a beer, and he'd walk the beach. 
And I went back, you know, you, I went back to myself thinking about that. And I weighed that against all my friends and what they had. When you weigh happiness, he was going to be just as happy as all my friends I knew that had the Rolls Royces, the Diamonds, and all that. And then later on when I changed my life, I would ask my friends, I'd say, damn, the ones who was in jail? I never had one friend who ever wrote me that said he missed his, job, his Diamonds or his Rolls Royce. They all wrote me saying like, yeah, man. I wish I could be in the park with you. I wish I could sit on the bench. And that was like such a revelation, you know what I mean? And I took a look at that. I took a big look at that, man. I said, you know what, man? That's it for me. But, but, so but, when you see me dressed now, this is like what you got on. What you got on, that's suitable for, you know, uh, someone, a newscaster, mm -hmm. you know? And when I got suit on, this is like I'm still gambling, you know? Because when I was gambling, the trick of gambling is like, People weren't so concerned about winning the money. They wanted to win me. And why they want to win me is because of the way I look, my, my ability to gamble. You know what I mean? The way I talk, all that is part of it. So, so take, <laughs> me, take me back here, though. The, the lesson of your life is, on one hand, all this material yes. has given you great wealth and status and fame and joy. Yes. And at the same time, the material isn't everything. It is in everything. That's a, that's a tough, that's yeah. like a two competing yeah. thoughts. Yeah. There's and, a, there's and, that's, a lot. and that's the story. That's right. the biggest part of the story. It's like <laughs> I'm, I'm gravitating towards, this is what's taking me from room to room. Each All these rooms in my life is like I'm wrestling with what is this, you know, what is this thing, this spiritual thing, this, you know. And, and then when I got into metaphysics, I say, wow, everything that I gave up that was wrong created something for me that was right. You know, so I, I saw how I played this up. Now, let me tell you about my heroes. My heroes was Malcolm right. and a guy called Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson was the best hustler in Harlem. He was the most gifted hustler in Harlem, and Malcolm was my spiritual teacher. The reason Malcolm was my spiritual teacher because he couldn't be undermined. He didn't even know that he didn't own his house. Money wasn't didn't make no difference to him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They couldn't. They couldn't sway him with women or nothing. I said, this man, is, this man is amazing. So when I looked at Malcolm, right, and I looked at Joe Jackson, I said, neither one of them had bad habits. It's just that Joe Jackson was a master of evil and Ma Malcolm was a master of good. And the irony of it all, I had to look at it. Both of them got assassinated. Wow. Yeah, two sides of the two sides of the coin. Yeah. So it's it's it's, it's the fluctuation between those two worlds that I had to navigate. Right. Yeah. Um. What 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 is fly? What is fly to you right now? What F defines fly? F okay, fly is a generational thing, and let me tell you what determines it. I mean, I know what it means, but but what no, is I'm it? A, I'm, a, I'm gonna give you the, I'm gonna okay. give you the, this this ethnic look at it, this Harlem look at what's fly. Each generation, we have what I call a boy wonder. Right. They are the ones who determine what fly is. First of all, in fashion, there's no right or wrong. There's no ugly. It's, it's what, and, and, I, and, I, and I established this early on. It's um, people in power determine fashion. The same way it is with powerful brands, it is in the powerful element in Harlem. So... The reason my 
what I got, what I did was popular is because the number one, the most powerful hustlers in Harlem gravitated towards me. You know, once I convinced them what fly is, then I changed the whole face of what fly is. So fly is power. Fly is the power, whether it's a multi, a multinational corporation, fashion corporation, or the guy who controls what's going on in his neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? Now, and I had number one guy. So I'm gonna go back to these glasses you got on. I could never wear those glasses. No, they wouldn't be suitable for what you do. Well, I'm just saying I can't pull that off. But you make that look incredibly yeah. cool, right? Yeah. Like just cool. Yeah, and you know, this and what's is, what's the story behind those? These glasses define like you see. I won't wear nothing that don't say Gucci. You see my shoes? I do. You know, I these do. are conservative shoes, but they. I had to. I had to. Tie my shoestrings a little lower so you can see the Gucci label. <laughs> you know, people have to want to aspire to look like you. That's what fly is. Okay. You know. You know. Period. So, period. End of story. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, what right, fly is. Right. Okay. Fly is aspirational, and the aspiration comes from the person who generates that. Yeah. And that would be that would be Daffer Dan. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to add here? Did I leave anything out? Oh. The turtleneck thing. Oh. I didn't touch on that. When this first happened, I let the world know, I'm a black man before I'm a brand. Yeah. Right? So I told Gucci, you have to come here to Harlem and explain what happened. And they came and they explained what happened. Now, a billion dollar business, just rationally speaking, a billion dollar business is not going to be playing around with any black face like that and jeopardize a billion dollar business. You know, that's one way of looking at it. So they explain how it came about, what happened? Yeah, it was an accident. And accidents like this came about because Gucci and a lot of the European brands today, they take a lot of things, they appropriate a lot of elements of culture, right. basically our culture. But they don't understand the ramifications and the significance of things that they might extract from our culture. And that's what creates the problem. So when Gucci came here and we sat down, I assembled people from the corporate, people of color from the corporate world who are responsible for inclusivity and that could handle situations like that there. And we call those the, the changes, right? So those who will create a change. And Gucci met with them and said and, and, and came to an agreement that they're gonna have in, uh, inclusivity from the top down and they're gonna put money into schools educational programs here and in Africa and, and, and throughout the world so this is the big program now in terms of the boycott associated with that of course we are gonna be offended of course people at the bottom gonna feel offended so but they have to understand if you boycott and you say you're not gonna buy from Gucci you get zero results. This would be the first boycott ever of people of color in America that end up with no results, mm. you know? So I encourage people of color to say, listen, they made a mistake, okay, they're here to make up for this mistake and do something about it, let's let them do it. Yeah, you fix this one from the inside. Exactly. And you feel satisfied that they're doing the right thing. Yes, and so do the cult, so do the changes. They have to. We all have to agree that they're doing the right thing, yeah. and that's what we come to.